delighted to get to be here. I, you know, I wish that Mark and I had had the time to, to get to know each other for the last 20 years. We kind of have met before, but have never had the chance to really visit and real kindred spirit with him and appreciate um, just what the, the work here at, at, uh, at this church at Beaumont Bible and thankful to have the privilege to come. You know, I was invited up to the school with uh, Brett and then uh, was able to kind of piggyback here. And uh, it's, it's not often that you can basically reach out to a church or have someone reach out on your behalf and say, hey, he's going to be in the area. Can he come? And the pastor says, yeah, I'll, you know, come. So uh, especially since he doesn't know me. And uh, uh, so that's good. So, um, you know, I, uh, I prayed about what to talk about tonight. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's hard when you go to a solid Bible teaching church that understands grace, that understands the authority of Scripture, that gets the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel, which is our passionate, not by works, which we've been around since 99. That's been our driving passion. Everything we do, even the new series on Spirit of the Antichrist, clearly articulates the gospel. And that's one of our real um, joys, I think, is that this book, these books are getting in the hands, in many cases, of, be, of unbelievers who understand the conspiracy that's happening as Satan attempts to take over this world, but they've never necessarily heard the clear gospel. And so they may resonate with some of the things that I say in those books, and then as they read them, throughout the book, as, as appropriate, it kind of cut, the gospel comes up. But at the end of both books, I have an epilogue that clearly states uh, the gospel of grace. And so um, pray that the Lord continues to use that. The first volume came out March 21st. It's just gotten unbelievable attention and attraction. And the second volume comes out October 31st by design on Satan's favorite holiday. Uh, to kind of be in your face to Satan, uh, who's trying to take over this world. So I uh, pray that the Lord uses those. But uh, I did want to share one story. I had the strangest dream last night. And by the way, we're going to be in Mark 10. If you have your Bibles, you can you can turn to Mark 10. But you know, I'm from Colorado. My family live, and I live in Colorado. We live in the mountains. And uh, this time of year, we're tuning up the snow plows and making sure you know our furnace and fireplaces work because we're already getting down below freezing overnight. Uh, I come here down in southeast Texas, and I don't know if you all have calendars here, but it is October. I don't know if you've noticed that. But I, yeah, I don't know, but I, I had a dream last night. I was staying at Brett's, and man, did he leave? Where is Brett? i got to make sure. Okay. When people are the target of my stories, I like to, in case they throw something at me. But no, I, it, it was kind of hot upstairs. I turned the fan on, and uh, and I had this weirdest dream, I, I just unusual to be hot this time of year, and I dreamed I died and gone to heaven, and uh, throughout uh, heaven, uh, there were everywhere, as far as I could see, there were, there were clocks, like that clock right there, you know, the old-fashioned kind with the minute hand and the hour hand, and, and under each clock was a name, and these names corresponded to people that I knew on earth. And it was just bizarre, you know, as dreams often are. And I finally I asked St. Peter, uh, what's going on with these clocks? And he said, well, each believer on earth has a corresponding clock in heaven. And the degree to which they're faithfully serving the Lord and earning rewards at the Bema determines how fast that clock goes. And he said, uh, if you see a clock moving slowly, it means they're not committing very many sins. They're not, you know... They're pretty stable. They're walking with the Lord, walking in the Spirit, not after the flesh. And he said, but if you see one that's going faster, they're, they're involved in some things they really shouldn't be involved in. Well, 
knowing how it worked, Pastor Mark, I started looking for people I knew, you know. So, you know, I, I started with, you know, a few deacons and elders at previous churches. I was just curious, you know. Um, uh, and then, you know, brother-in-law, people like that, right, you know. Um, but then it occurred to me, I wonder what old Brett's clock looks like. <laughs> And I really got concerned because uh, I, I, I couldn't find it for a while. And I thought, <laughs> man, uh, I mean, I know this guy. He loves the Lord. He's clearly a believer. He's clear on the gospel. He's got to have a clock up here. So anyway, finally I asked St. Peter about I said, hey, Brett Nazareth, I can't find his clock. He goes, oh, yeah, Brett Nazareth, of course, yeah. We moved his clock into God's office. He's using it as a fan. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we are, uh, we're, gonna, we're just going to run through a familiar passage. Uh, it's not going to be anything new or profound. You're clearly getting the, the grace gospel. You understand that salvation is by grace through faith. There's nothing we can earn, nothing we bring to the table. It's simply uh, by the uh, grace of God. Jesus paid it all. But this is a little interaction with a, a guy, the rich young ruler. And we're going to kind of be like the NSA and the CIA. We're going to take a trip up to Sandy, Utah, Utah at that huge fusion center and find this young man's bit bucket and eavesdrop on a conversation that he had uh, with Jesus. And I think we can learn a lot about the clarity of the gospel from that. First, some background and, uh, and context. Uh, we know, of course, that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic writers, each wrote with a particular theme in mind. That's what the gospel writers do. They take selected events from the life and ministry of Christ and and collate them into a, under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, into a, a theological theme and purpose. And so Mark, Matthew, for example, wrote uh, to a Jewish audience to show that uh, Jesus Christ is the King, and uh, Messiah is the most fitting title for Jesus in Matthew. Luke uh, wrote to the Greeks about uh, the ideal man, and that uh, Jesus is the Son of Man, and that's a, a key a title. But you get to Mark. Mark wrote to the Romans about Jesus as the suffering servant. And Mark in this gospel does not identify himself as the author, but we know from a variety of evidence that indeed John Mark or Mark uh, is the author of the gospel that uh, bears his name. He was a relative of Barnabas and accompanied Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. And at one point they had a split and Mark left with Barnabas, if you remember the story. And later Mark became very useful to Paul uh, during his second Roman imprisonment. And Mark was also with Peter uh, when Peter was in Rome, and Peter described him as a son, that is, his protege, his son in the faith. Uh, early church fathers, like uh, Origen, indicate that Mark wrote in the waning year or so before Peter's death. Peter died in 64 AD, so that puts Mark's gospel, uh, the time of writing it, roughly 62 to 64 AD. Very, some very unique features of Mark's gospel. He uses a lot of forceful, fresh, vigorous uh, language and style. He, he's there's only about 80 words that occur nowhere else in the Greek New Testament uh, compared with, say, Luke's gospel that contains about 250 unique words that are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Ninety percent of Mark's content comes from Matthew or is repeated in Matthew. Uh, he has a less polished grammar than uh, Luke and Matthew, and as I said, just a real forceful, fresh, uh, vigorous uh, style. He's like a reporter giving a, uh, an eyewitness account. Uh, one of the key words is immediately. He uses the word immediately 80 times. 
uh, or it's used 80 times in the New Testament. Half of them are by Mark in Mark's short gospel. About one-third of Mark's gospel deals with the Passion Week, the final week of Christ's life. And uh, there are many other references to suffering throughout the book. And so if, you're, if you ever find yourself in a season of suffering, I encourage you to read the book of Mark. It would be a great encouragement uh, to you. Uh, let me catch up with myself here, sorry. Um, sometimes I get ahead of myself. The key verse, uh, obviously, uh, you've heard this many times, I'm sure, but Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom from, for many. And that key verse comes from the chapter that we're going to be looking at uh, tonight. So Matthew presents Jesus, and this is from G. Campbell Morgan, Matthew presents Jesus in the majestic purples and gold of royalty. Mark portrays him in the earthly browns and greens of a servant who has come to do his father's will. Now let's zoom into the immediate context. The first eight chapters of Mark's gospel deal with Christ's early and later Galilean ministry. And then in chapter 8, verse 31, Mark turns to Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem for that trip up the Via Dolorosa where he would die on the cross to pay your penalty for sin and mine and all the world. Uh, and that's uh, near the end. So this is occurring, chapter 10 occurs then near the end of Jesus' earthly life. It's on the eve of the triumphal entry, which starts in chapter 11 of Mark's gospel. And so essentially in our text, we're, we're leading up to that final week. In fact, chapters 11 to 16 deal with all sorts of uh, things relating to Christ's uh, crucifixion, his resurrection, the post-resurrection appearances, and so forth. In the immediate chapter, it starts out with a discussion of marriage and divorce. In fact, uh, there's a verse that caught my eye. Maybe some of you are familiar with this, but in Mark 10, verse 6, um, in the context of, of Jesus' teaching about marriage and divorce, he says this, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Now, a lot of times, if you just let the Scripture speak for itself, you can really settle a lot of disputes. And when the Bible says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, that indicates that man was present at the beginning of creation, not millions of years later. We didn't evolve from a wet rock over millions of years. From day one, God created man. And that's what Jesus is saying there in, in, the, in the context of uh, divorce and remarriage. Then, uh, then in the immediately preceding section to this story, this encounter with the rich young ruler, Jesus talks about children, and uh, he says, let the little children come to me. And Mark, uh, in his record of this account, again under the inspiration of the Spirit, ties the story of the rich young ruler more closely to the incident with the, with the children than, some, than Matthew and Luke do. He wanted his readers to see this young man as expressing exactly the opposite of what Jesus had just taught his disciples. And, and what had he taught them? He said, As surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And as we shall see, the rich young ruler most certainly does not do this. And then you get to the rich young ruler, and then if you finish out chapter 10, he talks about how the first shall be last, servant leadership, and then uh, the uh, uh, blind Bartimaeus and his healing where Jesus says, Your faith, your faith has made you well. So we're going to focus in here on the rich young ruler and look at a rich man's journey in search of eternal life. And essentially, I'm just going to make five observations that are theological principles uh, that I think we can get uh, from uh, this passage. 
first thing we see in verse 17 is a man who's contemplating the afterlife. He's contemplating the afterlife. If you look at verse 17, we read, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running. I mean, this was an urgent matter to this young man. The Greek word for running here is used only three times in the entire New Testament, and it denotes urgency and anxiety and excitement. The other, one of the other places it was used, for example, is Philip uh, running to the Ethiopian in the chari chariot after the Holy Spirit prompted him to do that. Um, so he's running, and uh, he's, he knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Notice he calls Jesus good teacher. He knew there was something about Jesus that was unique, something amazing, something that was attracting a lot of attention, but he didn't grasp who Jesus was. And notice he thinks, and this has often been pointed out, he thinks that eternal life can be gained by doing something. And this is something that Jesus addressed at the beginning of the early on in his ministry. Uh, Matthew's account, it's right at the very beginning, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus begins to explain to, uh, to the crowds on the hillside, and I, I don't have time to make this case, but I firmly believe that the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount was really for the Pharisees and scribes who were lurking in the shadows, listening to every word that he said. And... Uh, Jesus, as you know, says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom. And at that time, the Jews, even though they, they didn't like the way the scribes and Pharisees lorded it over them and were pious and haughty and so forth, they nevertheless had a false understanding of the law and felt like that somehow they were the ones that were going to be the front of the line. They, they had it all together. They crossed their T's and dotted their I's, and somehow they just needed to be like them even though they didn't really like them. And so Jesus makes it clear that they're not the standard. In fact, he says you've got to be better than that. And in case, just in case, anybody listening to his words that day took him literally and thought, well, okay, I don't know how in the world I'm going to be able to keep the law more legalistically than these Pharisees and Sadducees who have the huge phylacteries and wear the right clothes and clang the money. In the, in the offering plate and all of that. I don't know how we can do it, but if that's what it takes, I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'll try harder, I'll work harder, I'll do more, and I'll get in. Just in case somebody thought that was what he was saying, he concludes chapter 5 by saying, as a matter of fact, if you want to get into the heaven, you've got to be perfect, just like the Heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, the, the righteousness that heaven demands is perfect righteousness. And, and throughout the Gospels, really, that's the, the story. It's a juxtaposition of the self-righteous, pious Jewish leaders who think they have no need of Christ or they can do it themselves, they're good enough, versus the dirty, rotten, filthy harlots and tax collectors and, and whoever else that come to Jesus saying, I'm not worthy. And what's interesting is after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's account, you know, after constantly rebuking them by saying things like, you know, you, you think, or you, you I'm paraphrasing obviously, but you claim you've not committed murder, but let me ask you, have you hated? <laughs> you claim you've never committed adultery. Let me ask you, have you lusted? See, it's not what you do that matters, it's what's in your heart. 
And you are all unrighteous. You've not been justified. Your behavior, no matter how moral it may seem on the outside, is not right. That's why he concludes the Sermon on the Mount by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. <laughs> right? And then right, get, guess what Matthew records under the inspiration of the Spirit right after the Sermon on the Mount, the very first thing in Matthew 8, is Jesus' encounter with a Gentile, the centurion. And that centurion has faith. And what does Jesus say? I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. And then he goes on to say, in fact, I tell you the truth, people will come from the east and the west, the Gentiles, to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. But the sons of the kingdom, in the context referring to unbelieving Israel, will be cast out. See, it's not what you do that matters. It's who you know, really. It's, it's your faith righteousness. So the Sermon on the Mount can be summarized basically in saying, uh, that fake righteousness won't get you there. Uh, Jesus doesn't grade on the curve. Entrance into heaven isn't like an SAT test, as long as you're in the 99th percentile, you're in. <laughs> See, people have believed the lie of Satan that somehow convinces them that our eternal destiny is like grading on a curve. It's, it's a, you know, they, they somehow think that the standard for hell is Hitler and the standard for heaven is Mother Teresa. And as long as we're in the neighborhood of Mother Teresa, you know, we're not, you know, we're not perfect, but we're better than most. And as long as we're not in the neighborhood of Hitler, you know, I'm, I may have made some mistakes, but I'm no Hitler. As long as we're in that sort of, you know, continuum, somehow we'll get in. But the problem is, that's not the way God looks at it. We are born dead in our trespasses and sin. And our sin has to be remedied, and there's nothing you and I can do about it to remedy that sin. I mean, I can't pay for your sins. I got enough sins on my own shoulder. You can't pay for mine, no matter how much you, you like me. Uh, our kids, our friends, our loved one, we can't save them. They have to rely on the Savior, the one who took the sins of the world upon his shoulders. And the only one who had the room on his shoulders to do so, because he lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, died a cruel death on the cross, defeated death, hell, and the grave three days later when he rose from the dead. And now he offers freely to all the gift of eternal life. So this uh, rich young ruler was essentially echoing the cultural feeling of the day. And that is, if I can just do more, I'll get eternal life, right? And he ran to Jesus to find out about it. There's an urgency to the gospel that we have absolutely lost in our culture today. People are quite content to just sort of let it play out. Uh, in my book, I talk, in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, first book I ever wrote, 15, I don't know, 17 years ago or something like that, I tell the story of a mega church in Houston that um, a friend of mine was on staff at for two weeks before he realized he'd made a horrible mistake and quit. <laughs> but uh, they, they decided they're going to start an evangelism program. You know what their evangelism program was, Pastor Mark? The massive, big mega church with a huge lobby, and they put these two huge, big copper, almost looked like cauldrons, really, but that I'm sure that's what, what they intended, but these big buckets. And one of them said, seeker. One of them said, follower. And their marketing campaign was to encourage people who were unchurched, didn't know the Lord, not religious, to come, try us out. We have very comfortable seats, their billboard said. And, and as you come, they strongly encourage you, take your time. There's no urgency. We want you to put your name on an index card and drop it in the bucket that said seeker. 
And over the weeks to come, as you begin to know people and you get, you get acclimated and you join a small group on things like Tupperware and hunting and fishing <laughs> and, you know, those important theological doctrinal issues, uh, and you really feel like, you know, you found your place, then we want you to take your card and move it to the follower bucket. And notwithstanding the fact that nobody gets saved by, you know, following Christ. I mean, there were all kinds of followers in the New Testament that were not believers. John 6 talks about that. Judas was called a follower of Christ. He clearly was not a believer. But even if they happen to have a clear gospel, the notion of just come on in, take your time, is, is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we're not promised tomorrow. Life is but a vapor. And uh, especially these days with the signs of the times where there's an added urgency of the, the reality that the Lord could come back at any moment. And even though I believe, I don't know what Pastor Mark teaches, there are some differing views on this, so I wouldn't die on this hill. I believe uh, people can get saved after the rapture, even if they've heard the gospel before. I wouldn't count on that because if you didn't believe the gospel today, what makes you think you're going to believe it after the rapture in the greatest time of unprecedented deception that ever the world has seen, right? So... Uh, if, you, if you're not saved, and I, I don't know you, so I'm not going to presume anything, but if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day to do it. Uh, I was saved, Mark, when I was six years old. I grew up in a good old Hellfire and Brimstone uh, independent Baptist church. At the time, my family lived in West Virginia, and uh, you know, I, I don't know if he was always clear on the gospel, but he was clear enough to make it clear that you know, I was a sinner and I was on the road to hell. In fact, we, that was back when we had Sunday night services and every, almost every service, he would talk about, if you get hit by a bus on the way home from church, are you prepared to meet your maker? I have a morbid fear of buses to this day. <laughs> but, uh, but one Sunday night, I, the Spirit of God got a hold of me. I'd heard the gospel many times, grew up in a Christian family, but uh, the Spirit of God got a hold of me. And when my dad came in to say our bedtime prayers that night, I said, Daddy, I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> and by the way, anybody that tells you that salvation isn't fire insurance is reading a different Bible. That's precisely what it is. Jesus did not go to the cross so you can be happy and healthy and find your best life now. He went to the cross to save you from the everlasting lake of fire. And uh, that's the punishment for sin. That's the penalty for sin. And he paid that penalty. So anyway, I, that simple, as a six-year-old boy, I, I simply understood and placed my faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for my sins. So we see a lot here as this young man is contemplating uh, the afterlife and uh, he comes running to Jesus. The next thing we see is that he consults the source of life. Uh, he goes to the source. And we read in verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. So he rebukes this young man for his assumption that Jesus was just another good teacher. You know, In other words, he says, Since you don't think I'm God, why are you calling me good? Right? Um, and so uh, we know from John's gospel that Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. In the upper room, Jesus said just hours before he was betrayed and arrested, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this man went to the right source. He consulted the source of life. The next thing we see is he needs to confront his insufficient life. Since the young man was so fixated on doing things for the Lord, typical of 
the scribes and Pharisees of his day, like I said, Jesus used his own words against him. In essence, Jesus said, you want to earn your way into heaven? Okay, let's go. Here we go. Let's see how far that gets you. How are you doing with the commandments? And that's what Jesus says. Uh, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. How's it going? And he was trying to highlight this man's insufficiency in and of himself to meet the standard. So what does the young man say? Well, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. All these things. Now remember, this is the same Jesus, and, and presumably he repeated these messages many times, and the Holy Spirit just included some of them. In other words, we don't have every word Jesus said throughout his three-and-a-half-year ministry, but presumably he said it frequently, like I mentioned from the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll no, by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. See, it's not about keeping score. It's not about a checklist. It's not about how many of the commandments you've kept or how well you think you've kept them. It's a zero-sum game. Paul understood this. Paul, uh, talking about his, you know, uh, taking on kind of an absurd voice here, he's, he's saying, look, I'm a Jew among Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, hey, I was a Pharisee. I was blameless. You know, you can almost see him doing air quotes as he's saying it uh, when it came to the law. In other words, Paul, you know, used to have the same attitude before he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, which is, I've dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's. Ain't nobody that's going to be more deserving of heaven uh, than me. And so back to the rich young ruler, Jesus' response is so moving. Um, I mean, he loved this man. Mark tells us Jesus looked at him, loved him. And by the way, Mark's the only one who includes that commentary that Jesus said this. He said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. Now, if you don't understand gospel narrative, and you don't understand the theology of grace, and you don't understand how to compare scripture to scripture, and you pull this one verse out of context, then you're going to end up with a pretty false view of how a person goes to heaven. You're going to think you've got to be poor and sell everything you own. You're going to think uh, you've got to uh, put your, your own desires to death and somehow uh, become a martyr in that sense, and you're going to think you have to follow Christ. Well, I'm glad that's not the standard because I'll be honest with you. I don't always put my fleshly desires to death. I'm not always following Christ, uh, and I certainly um, you know, am, am not giving away all my goods to the poor. What's the point? What's Jesus saying? Jesus is trying to target the false attitude that this man had, that his life was sufficient, that he'd done enough. The man had just said, I've kept all the commandments. So Jesus zeroes right in on some commandments that he, in fact, had not kept. And Jesus loved this man. The most loving thing we can do for someone is to tell them the truth. And by the way, I can't help myself because I've been entrenched all year in these two books, and, and so they're the most important books I've ever written, and I hope you'll take a look at them on the spirit of the Antichrist. But I might add, it's, it's, it's the most loving thing we can do is tell the truth. It's never the loving thing to do to perpetuate a lie. And we've had a lot of people over this last year suggest that if we really love people, we'll just sort of support them in their false notions of reality. 
and I'll just leave it at that because I'm not sure where everybody is on that. I don't want to offend you, but there have been a lot of lies being told by our government, by our society, and, and a lot of Christians don't have the courage to stand up and say, you know what, that's a lie. It is never the loving thing to do to perpetuate a lie. Uh, but Jesus, you know, loved this man. Uh, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends, he said. By this, 1 John tells us, we know love because he laid down his life for us. So Jesus loved the man and he says, go sell whatever you have and give to the poor. He pointedly addresses this young man's claim. Had he really kept all the law as he claimed that he had done? Was there a part of the law which perhaps he was neglecting, which thus proved his insufficiency before a holy God? Well, let's take a look. The law says, if there's among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor neighbor, but you shall open your hand wide to him. You shall surely give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and to you're needy. In other words, guess what, young rich ruler? The law requires you to be generous to the poor. And guess what? James, the Lord's brother, in quite possibly the earliest New Testament book, said, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in even one point is guilty of all. So quite the contrary to what this young man said, I've kept all the law, all the commandments, according to God's word, he had really kept none of them. In other words, he was woefully short of the standard. And then we see that he confesses his need for eternal life. The road to eternal life begins by understanding your need. Now, I'm not talking here about confessing in the sense of some type of public verbal confession. The word confess, as you all, I'm sure, know, is homologato, means to say the same thing as basically what I'm saying here is that he needed to agree with God that he was a hopeless, helpless sinner and he needs a Savior. If you don't know you're a sinner, you don't need a Savior. If you don't know you're drowning, you're not going to reach for the life preserver. starts by recognizing sin. If you're not mentioning sin in a gospel uh, presentation, you're not presenting the gospel. If there's no bad news, there can be no good news. And so he... he, he has to confess his need uh, for eternal life. It reminds me of uh, a, a conversation that we read. We, we, we homeschooled our six children. We read a lot together. My wife used a classical literature and uh, wish we'd have read more, honestly. But my life and ministry and, and stuff, we were, I was on the road a lot and we just we did it. But we had seasons where we did it pretty heavily. And I can remember reading the classic Alice in Wonderland and there's a conversation between Alice and the cat that you might recall where uh, it goes like this. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to go, said the cat. Well, Alice said, I don't much care where. The cat said, well, then it doesn't matter which way you go. <laughs> so long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, said the cat, you're sure to do that if you only walk long enough. See, if you want to get somewhere, anywhere, you got to know two things. Two foundational facts for any journey, and that includes the journey to eternal life. you got to know where are you and where do I want to go. 
If you don't care where you want to go, it doesn't much matter where you start from. And if you don't know your starting point, it will not help you to know where you want to go. When it comes to our eternal destiny, you've got to know you're a sinner on the road to hell, and apart from Christ, you will spend a literal eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. That's how serious sin is. When it comes to the journey of eternal life, it starts by knowing you're lost and in need of a Savior. And what do we find out? Well, he was sad at this word. When Jesus told him to sell all his goods, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Tragically, the young man was not willing to abandon his trust in his riches and his power and his status and replace it with a singular trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. He refused to trust in the Lord for the one thing he was searching for. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin, Ecclesiastes tells us. We're all uh, dead in our trespasses and sins. And we're made alive by faith alone in Christ alone. When we're born again, reborn. And unless that happens, we're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, the context there in John 3 is another conversation between Jesus and a man of status in his community and uh, Nicodemus, and Nicodemus did end up getting saved, we, we feel. John 5, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, that you are not willing to come to me, that you may have eternal life. See, the, contrary to what Calvinists teach, you, you can reject the gospel, and you can believe the gospel. You have the power to believe the gospel, you have the power to reject the gospel. A gift freely offered is not a gift if, it is not, if you don't have the capacity to receive it. You've got to be able to receive the gift for it to be a bona fide gift. A forced gift that's forced upon you that you have no choice in the matter whether to receive is not love. Forced love is never love. Forced love is hate, frankly. But Jesus says, come one, come all. He died for the sins of the world. And uh, this describes perfectly the perspective of the rich young ruler. He was not willing to come to Jesus that he might have life. And I think the journey to eternal life ends with then considering the one and only means of obtaining eternal life. Eternal life is not gained through one's righteous actions, for reverence for the law, through good behavior, through meticulous performance. It's gained by faith and faith alone, and the only one who has the authority to forgive sin. Jesus goes on to say in this passage, as he looked at his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter uh, the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, and Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And this is the key. Note he says it right there in plain English. I don't think he spoke English, but we're reading it in plain English. How hard it is for those who trust in riches. That was the problem with the rich young ruler. It was a trust issue. He had misplaced faith. His faith was in his own performance, his own ability. And he needed to trust in Jesus. Where is your trust? Jesus uses that famous analogy, somewhat of a humorous comparison, uh, the analogy from the first century. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A very uh, memorable Jewish proverb that really depicts the impossibility of what Jesus was saying. It's, it's easier for uh, a camel, the largest beast, and largest animal in Palestine at the time, to go through the eye of a common sewing needle which is what this is talking about here. Um, 
than it is for a rich man who trusts in his riches to enter God's kingdom. You might put it this way. It's easier to thread a tiny needle with a great big huge camel than to get into the kingdom of God when you're trusting in your riches. Who are you trusting in? They were greatly astonished. They said, well, who then can be saved? It's kind of embarrassing, frankly, to see the disciples' confusion here, but we see that a lot, and we don't want to judge too harshly because we'd have been right there walking with them. We would have done the same thing probably. They just didn't seem to get it, even though he made it clear again and again and again. Jesus had emphatically stated that the only way to be saved was to trust in him for the gift of eternal life, and it's just bizarre that the disciples didn't see his point. It just shows how much cultural influences affect our thinking. In the first century Jewish world, wealth was a very powerful status symbol, probably even more so than today. And it was hard for anyone to imagine how a wealthy, devout Jew, such as this rich young ruler, could somehow be excluded from heaven. But God is no respecter of persons. Romans 2.11 tells us that. Acts 10, we read about that with Cornelius. God is no respecter of persons. Anyone and everyone who hopes to enter heaven someday must do so the same way, the one and only way, by faith. And by the way, you don't get heaven when you die. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel. <laughs> and so Jesus looked at them and he said, with men it's impossible, but with God it's not, because with God all things are possible. In other words, who then can be saved? The disciples wringing their hands. Anyone can be saved by the grace of God. That's the beautiful thing about the cross. The cross, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You're never too good to need grace. You're never too bad to need grace. You know, we need grace. We need God's undeserved gift, which we receive by faith. What is impossible with men gaining eternal life by wealth, power, and performance, and self-improvement, and behavior, and religion, and all, all these other things is possible with God, for by grace are we saved. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, as everlasting life. And yet, the heretical doctrine of works continues to make advancements. You know, devil's crosshairs are set right on the gospel. Second uh, Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's blinding men's hearts to the gospel. Uh, someone texted me, a friend of mine that I was just at a conference with, texted me a tweet from uh, uh, O.S. Hawkins. I don't mind mentioning the name because he put it in a tweet I'm about to show you. But O.S. Hawkins, a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention and leader key leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, was commending Jack Graham, another key Southern Baptist leader. Just so happens that 32 years ago, I did a six-month internship at Prestonwood Baptist in Dallas under Jack Graham um, in, a, in a college ministry department. And uh, so O.S. Hawkins, in this tweet I'm about to show you, is commending Jack Graham. And look at what he says. He says, uh, one of the secrets of Prestonwood, one of the largest churches in America, is that Jack Graham is inviting people to receive Christ publicly every service. And here's O.S. Hawkins' commentary. You know, there's something about making a public pledge that helps seal it in your life. I, I, don't, I hate to tell you, if 100 unbelievers walk an aisle at Prestonwood Baptist Church and make a pledge to follow Jesus, 100 of them are going to leave unsaved. Because you don't get saved by making a pledge of allegiance. Salvation is not a bilateral contract between you and God where you promise, pledge, forsake, surrender. You bring enough to the table. You know, a lot of people, that's how they think salvation is. You sit down at the bargaining table. There's God. He goes, I got eternal life. What do you got? And people go, well, a 
I'll stop doing this. I'll never do that. I promise to do this. I pledge to do this. I'll turn from all my sins. I'll forsake all my sins. I'll be better. I'll work harder. I'll do more. And eventually God says, okay, you got a deal. Let's shake on it. And that's the way people view salvation. Like it's some kind of bilateral contract. Well, guess what? It's not a bilateral contract. It's a unilateral gift. And nobody gets saved by pledging something to the Lord. As Pastor and I were talking you know, at, at dinner, you know, if that was the way it works, how much? How much do I have to pledge? How much sin do I have to turn from? How much good do I have to do? Very simple message tonight. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It starts by the urgency of the gospel, recognizing there is an afterlife and life is but a vapor. You consult the one and only source of life. Confront your own insufficient life. You can't be saved on your own. You confess your need for salvation and you consider the one and only means of obtaining it. So the rich man's journey in search of eternal life turned out to be a dead end. But it doesn't have to be that way for us. So the takeaway tonight is, remember, there's more to life than this life. You've got to understand the eternal nature. You know, we've become so consumed by the here and now that sadly we're forgetting the then and there. And for many people, by the time they're confronted with the then and there, it'll be too late. There's only one source for eternal life. And is there anything standing between you and eternal life? I'm going to pray to close this out, but I do want to mention, because it's a real burden on my heart, uh, what we've talked about a couple times already, the Spirit of the Antichrist uh, books. The second volume actually comes out, as I mentioned, October 31st. We are taking pre-orders. If you're interested, and we'll ship it to you. But I have Volume 1 with me here tonight. Uh, if you're not uh, sure if there are books that would um, interest you, and I promise you they will, I think I wish every believer would read these books, uh, you can go when you get home to spiritoftheantichrist.org, and we have the preface to both books in full there and the table of contents to both books there. And you can kind of see the subjects that we cover. But I think we are seeing, like never before, uh, the run-up to the rapture. I think we can't prick a date when I'm not su suggesting a date, and ultimately God's the arbiter of the timetable, and he may wait another 100 years. I don't know. But Jesus told us to look at the signs of the times, and everything seems to be unfolding at warp speed right now, leading up to this one-world system. And I think Christians, uh, Proverbs 22.3 says, and when we see trouble coming, we need to prepare for it. The wise person does, and I think we need to be aware of it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, great church and the great uh, beacon on a hill of grace and the, gospel, the clear gospel, and thank you for uh, the work that they've been doing here for many years. Pray you continue to bless uh, Beaumont Bible and uh, DM2 and all of these folks uh, here, and thank you for the, uh, just the amazing grace that you've shown us in uh, giving us, uh, so unworthy as we are, the free gift of eternal life. And I pray that out of gratitude and uh, love for you, we would recognize who we are in Christ if we know you and live our lives uh, faithfully to serve you until you come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.